I need to begin this morning by addressing a, a nasty rumor that has been going around the church for the last couple of weeks. Um, if you're a guest of ours, I want to apologize for you having to be a witness to this, but it's a personal attack that I need to address to make sure that we're all on the same page here. Um, today, we are in week nine of a series that I've entitled Hero. And in this series, we've been looking at some of the Old Testament characters that some people would call heroes of the faith, but what we've tried to say is that they're actually all heroes pointing to the one true hero of the Bible, which of course is Jesus himself. So a couple of weeks ago, someone came up to me after church and said that we think that you've been plagiarizing this series. And they said, there's this world-renowned video series that we think you've been copying your sermon series from, and it's from a series called Veggie Tales. Um, <laughs> Hopefully, you, most of you caught the sarcasm in my voice there. Um, but as I did some, some research and looked through some of the VeggieTale stories and some of the characters that they've done stories on, I've noticed that there are some similarities between that. So for instance, let me just show you some of the, the few uh, VeggieTale stories that may correlate to our series. First, you've got Josh and the Big Wall. If you were here a few months ago, you may remember that. Um, there's Gideon, the tuba warrior. I don't know if you've seen that classic or not. I don't know if that's on Netflix or not. Um, Dave and the Giant Pickle, if you're here with us two weeks, Jennifer, that one's for you. Which leads us to our story this week, which is my favorite VeggieTale they ever made, which is Rack, Shack, and Benny. And so uh, we're going to do our best this morning um, to try to stick to the biblical narrative and not, if you watch VeggieTales, you'll remember Rack, Shack, and Benny bowed down to the big chocolate what? But, man, y'all were well-versed on this. I'm glad to see we have an educated congregation this morning. Um, I apologize if you have a teenager here and you've seen at least one of these that I know that from now on you're not going to hear a word that I'm going to be singing. I'm saying because you're going to be singing that theme song through your head, aren't you? That's all you're going to—I'm not going to sing it for you because uh, that would be a quick end of the message this morning. We're going to do our best to stick to the biblical narrative found in Daniel chapter 3. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, it's kind of a difficult book to find in the Old Testament. You've got to go find, through the major prophets, get to the minor prophets, and you're going to be in uh, the book of Daniel. By the way, it's not a sin to use your table of contents. No one's going to make fun of you. In fact, the person next to you is probably going to be relieved that you're doing that. So let's go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 16 this morning. But before we jump into the text, what I, I like to do every week, I hope, at least I attempt to do, before we jump into what the Bible is saying is make sure that we can paint a picture of what's going on um, before we get to where we are. So that we'd give some context to the story here. So in Daniel chapter 3, we are 600 years before the birth of Christ, 600 years before Jesus was born. And this takes place in a land known as Babylon. Now, if you said, hey, I want to go on a trip to Babylon, not sure why you would say that, um, but if you did, you would have to go to Iraq today. So when you think of Babylon, I want you to think today is that would be modern-day Iraq. Now, Babylon, they were the premier power of the world during this time. They were a conquering empire. They were a powerful group of people. And one of the things, one of their strategies um, that they would do is they would go in and they would conquer a group of people, which is what's just happened to Israel in our story today. They would conquer. They would dominate the, this land. And then they would take the professional class and they would deport them. They would exile them out of their current country, send them back to Babylon. You say, that's an interesting strategy. Why, why, why would they do that? 
Well, their thought process was that they were going to go into this country that, that didn't like their rule, that opposed what they were thinking, what their lifestyle, what their belief system was. So if they could go in and, and conquer that country and then send the ruling class or the, the professional class back to Babylon, that at least within a generation or if not one generation, maybe by the second generation, they would stop resisting the rule of the Babylonian Empire. Not only would they assimilate to that culture of Babylon, but also they would begin to lose their own distinct culture. They would begin to lose their their value system, their belief system. And and again, they would just assimilate to where um, they were going along with the flow of the Babylonian culture. So Daniel, who obviously is the main character of, of the book of Daniel, he's one of those who was exiled from Israel, sent to Babylon, And we're also going to see and meet his three friends, known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they are going to be faced with an incredible confrontation with the king of Babylon at the time, known as King Nebuchadnezzar. So, where we are in the verses right before where we're going to pick up, King Nebuchadnezzar has just built, or had had constructed, he didn't build it himself, this nine-story, this 90-foot-tall golden image. And where he placed this image, it was in a very public place. And around this statue, around this idol, he had, lack of a better word, an orchestra that was placed around this image. And if you were anywhere close to that golden image, whenever the the music began to play, that it was a rule, it was a decree that he made that you must begin to bow down and worship that image. So then not only that, he passed a decree that if anyone was in that public place and they didn't bow down, that there would be a punishment that would take place. Now, we know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we know they don't bow down to that idol. If you were raised in church, even if you weren't, you probably heard that part of the story because they knew that it was more important to honor God than to honor man, even if that man was the king. But this is what the decree said. This was the punishment that you see before we get to our text in Daniel chapter 3. This is verse 6 that Nebuchadnezzar says, And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So let me ask you a question. What do you think that that 90-foot golden statue, that golden image represented? Well, truth be told, we really don't know. You can read all the book of Daniel. It doesn't say this is the God that this was dedicated to. We know that the Babylonians, they didn't worship one God. They had multiple gods. But there's never a name given to this golden statue saying this is who this statue represents. But most conservative Bible scholars believe that this statue, that since it didn't just represent one God, that in fact this statue, it represented all the gods, all the values, all the belief system of the Babylonian culture. And here's why I think there's some validity to that. Because if you think about it, remember what was their strategy? Their strategy was they would go and they would conquer lands, they would get people, the professional class, bring them back. So over a a period of years in in the country, in the land of Babylon, they had lots and lots of different types of people that had come from different lands and they brought with them their culture, they brought with them their value system, but they also brought their their, their belief system and who they chose to worship, and they brought their gods with them. So with this statue, I think that King Nebuchadnezzar, he's not saying, you must bow down and worship my God and my God only. I only have one way to worship. But instead, my opinion is what he's saying is you must worship 
Babylon. Worship your gods however you choose to in private, but whenever you're in public, you need to assimilate to this culture and you need to bow down and worship this god of Babylonian culture. And friends, if we're not careful, even now in 2018 in America, if we're not careful, we too can become like the Babylonians. And we can say it's important that if you're going to live in America that you need to have some of the same standards that everyone's going to have. Worship your God however you want on Sunday. Worship how you want in your home. But when you're in public, keep your faith private. And you need to make sure that we all have the same set of value systems. But we promise, I promise, we're going to get to our, our text here in just a minute. But I want to paint another picture of who Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. We know that they, along with Daniel, they were raised in, in, in this country, okay? So we know that they, they loved that culture. They, they were educated there. They worked for the Babylonian government. They were engaged and involved in the land. I think they loved the people uh, where they lived. I think they were engaged in their community. But what we're going to see this morning is that when they are asked to keep their faith private— when they're asked to keep their value system, to keep their beliefs of, of God to themselves, they say, I'm sorry, King. We'll honor you. We'll respect you. But we cannot keep our faith private. And that's where we pick up our story in verse 16. So let's look at Daniel chapter 3. We're going to read a couple of verses, and then we're going to go forward. Let's look at verses 16 through 18. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So here we see that the Nebuchadnezzar, at this point, he's furious and in verses 17 and 18, I, I believe that we have two of the most incredible declarations that you could find in the entire Bible. You have these three men that were raised in this culture that are trying to respect the king, but they respect God and they want to honor God more than the king. They say, you know what, you know what, king? We believe that our God is able to save us. We believe and we know that he can save us. Not only do we believe he's able, not only do we believe that he can, we also believe that he will, verse 17, he will save us. But it doesn't end there, does it? But verse 18, he says, we believe that he can, we believe that he's able, we believe that he will, but even if he doesn't save us, we refuse, we will not bow down to this golden image. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, at this moment, they prove that they loved God for who he was, not for what they thought they could get out of him. They loved God for who he was, not for what they got out of him. And if we're honest today, and if we would take off these masks that we sometimes tend to wear, we come to church and we want to look like our, our families are perfect, we have no issues, we got God figured out, everything is going great in our life, let's just take those off for a minute. Let's all admit that we've all got issues. Let's admit that we all have questions, even about God, Right? I think that if we're honest, that many times in our lives we would say the reason that we worship God, the reason that we love Him, the reason that we serve Him is not just because of who He is, but sometimes we worship Him because of what we think we can get from Him. And that is the reason that we worship. How many times have we found ourselves in difficult situations 
where we have prayed and we have begged and we have said, God, if you could just perform this one miracle, if you just do this for me, everything will be all right. And then what happens when God doesn't show up? What happens when God doesn't respond the way that we had hoped? All along, we feel like we've done the right thing. We've prayed, we begged, we, we believed that God was able, but he didn't respond the way that we wanted him to. At that moment, weren't we truly completely trusting God? Not quite. We weren't completely trusting him. We were saying that if I obey God, if I pray to him, if I do these things, then surely the other end of that equation is that you will give me what I'm asking for. You see, when we say things like that, we aren't truly trusting God with all of our hearts. We're trusting God plus, plus, plus. God, I'm trusting you plus this. I'm trusting you plus that. That's not the kind of faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are demonstrating. The kind of faith they're demonstrating is they are saying that we are going to obey God. Why? Because he is worth it. Not because of what we might get out of it. Not because of what he might do for us. But we are going to worship God and God alone because he alone is worthy of our worship. I love the way that that Kent Hughes in his commentary, he says this in trying to define faith. He says that faith has three things. That faith, faith, first of all, has the assurance to say that I know my God is able to deliver me. That's what they first said. You have to have that assurance. I know that he has the ability. He is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. But it goes on. Not only does it have the assurance to say that I know he's able, faith also has the confidence to say that I believe that my God will deliver me. That's the second thing that they say. I I believe that he can. I know that he's able. But I also believe that he will save me. But it cannot end there. Some of our friends in in the name it, claim it, uh, they believe that if you just name it and you claim it, God's going to give you whatever you ask for. But what happens when God doesn't answer? You've got to have that third part of faith. Not only does it have the assurance and the confidence, it also has submission. Faith has the submission to say, but even if he does not, I will still trust him. Eve, I know that he can. I believe that he will. But if he doesn't, I'm still going to trust him. That's the submission of faith. Here's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew. And here's what I hope that you and I will believe. And that is that, yes, God can rescue us from death. He's able. He can rescue you from cancer, from sickness, from death, from the difficult things. He can rescue us from death. But he will always, listen to me, friends, he will always, if you are a disciple, if you have given him your heart, if you're following him, he may not rescue you from death, but he will rescue you through death. And I want, to, I want to take a time out here for just a second. Because I'm afraid that as Christians that we've lost this perspective of what death truly is for Christians. Somewhere along the way, we don't talk about death a whole lot anymore, do we? It seems like the only time that we talk about death is when we're at a funeral. A few weeks ago, I was in the chapel and Roger was getting ready to perform one of the greatest churchmen that I've known since I've been here, Mr. John Boyd's funeral. And John, as you know, I've been suffering for a long time and was ready to go be with his Lord and Savior, a man of God that loved this church, but more importantly, he loved his Lord and Savior. And on the front row of the chapel, I was sitting there with Miss Doris. And after we had talked for a few minutes, I asked her, I said, Miss Doris, what do you think it was like? Your husband struggled to breathe for a long time. He had difficulty in breathing. What was it like 
when after he breathed his last breath here on earth, that his next breath was in heaven. That his next moment, he was face to face with his Lord and Savior. That there was no more suffering, that there was no more sorrow, that he didn't struggle to breathe anymore. There was no sickness, there was no sadness. He was face to face with Jesus. What must that have been like? One of the reasons that I fear that as Christians that we dread death so much, that we talk about death in in such a terrible way so many times, is that we don't truly understand that what happens for the believer in Jesus Christ is when we die, that's what we receive, ultimate freedom. We receive ultimate joy. We are face to face with our Heavenly Father. We will be where we were created to be forever. We weren't created for this earth. This earth isn't our home. Why do we dread death so much? That's what's waiting for us on the other side. And when we truly understand what death does for us, when we truly understand what happens when we die, then we realize no matter what happens to our physical bodies, we are always safe. We are always protected because he is never, we are never at a period of our life that we're out of the palm of his hands. That's why the Apostle Paul, even after all of his beatings, all of the sufferings that he went through, he was able to say in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ. I want to keep on living because if I can keep on living, I can teach you about Christ. I can share about the Christian life. I can share about what Jesus has done for me. But guess what? Not only is is to live is Christ, but even better, to die is gain. It's even better. I can't wait to die, not because I want to die, but when I die, guess what? The worst you can do is take my body and you release me to live forever in eternity with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't need to dread death as Christians. I'm not saying we want to die tomorrow. But when we die, we understand that there's so much more to life than what we have in the material possessions here on this earth. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, you know what, King? Even if our God, who can, who we believe will, even if he doesn't save us, they understood that they had already won. Why? Why did they already win? They had already won before they were even thrown into the furnace because there was nothing There was nothing that King Nebuchadnezzar could do to keep them from spending eternity with their creator. You throw us in the fire, guess what? We still win because you're releasing us to spend eternity with our creator. When they understood this, that's why they were able to respond that way. They had a much bigger perspective on what life's about than the 70, 80, 90 years that we're here on this earth. You kill us, you release us to eternity. So let's see what happens in verses 19 through 29. A long passage here, but I want, there's more important what God's word says than anything that I have to say. So we're just going to read the words. Chapter 3, verses 19 through 29. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Don't forget that. They were bound before they were thrown into the furnace. Verse 21, "Then then these men were bound with their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. 
Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound, there's that word again, bound into the, into the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to, the, near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. I love this next part. I love the detail. The hair of their heads was not singed, and their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up for their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. Here's the key part. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. So Nebuchadnezzar says, turn up the fire, and I want you to heat it seven times hotter. And it's heated so much that when the men who are going to throw the, the three guys into the fire, that the flames just begin to envelop them, that they're instantly killed. And there's two things I want you to notice that we see that Nebuchadnezzar notices when they're thrown into the fire. The first thing that Nebuchadnezzar, when he rises up and he sees, is he begins to see that the three men, now they are walking around in the fire. Remember, they were bound, right? And now they're unbound, so the fire, it wasn't like, oh, the heat just went out, because obviously the fire made that, the, the uh, ropes go away. And now there's three men that are walking. This fire that was so hot, it killed the men before they just threw them in there. The second thing it says that Nebuchadnezzar sees is he sees now there's not only three men walking in the fire, but there's a what? There's a, a fourth man walking in that fire. And he says that fourth man looks like what? A son of the gods. So these three men, Chadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're all saved. They're all rescued by God. So what do we take away from this story? What do we learn? How, how can we say, okay, God, I understand that that's why that's there, but what does that mean for us today? Friends, throughout the Bible, there's a metaphor that God uses through fire or furnaces, and that means that the, the, the metaphor there for, is for trials, for suffering, for troubles. You see it all throughout Scripture when God talks about walking through fires or facing fires. He's talking about times of difficulty that we might experience. So before we leave this morning, what I want to do is I want to point out three truths that we find throughout Scripture for what the Bible tells us about suffering. I hope that you'll write these things down. What's the old saying that if you're not in a trial right now, you've just come through one, or if not, there's one coming right ahead. And I hope that these three truths that are not Blake's opinions, but they're found from God's word, that we will hold on to them, that we'll cling to them the next moment that we find ourselves going through that fire of life. 
the first thing that Scripture teaches us is that suffering is inevitable. Suffering is inevitable for all of us. I was supposed to start last Wednesday, but because of the snow, we'll start this Wednesday, a series on Wednesday nights through the book of 1 Peter. One of the things that, that 1 Peter tells the, the believers during that time is that suffering is inevitable. Chapter 4, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. Don't be surprised. It's going to happen. But too many times that we think, and even if we don't think, we may, excuse me, even if we don't say it out loud, we may think, well, the reason I'm suffering is because I've done something wrong. The reason I'm suffering is because God is punishing me for something in my past. And if we don't think about ourselves, we think about other people, don't we? We see them going through difficulties. We see them going through trials. And we think, oh, well, that's because I know what they did, X, Y, and Z. And, and they're facing this difficulty because of that, that's God's punishment because of their, their sin in their life. Or if we don't think about that that's God's punishment, then we begin to think, well, well God, I, I've tried my best to live a good life. I, I've gone to church. I gave my offering. I raised my family in church. Why am I suffering? Don't you know that person down the street? Do you know what they're doing? And they seem to have a perfect life, and they don't have any problems. Why am I going through the suffering when I'm doing the things right and they're doing everything wrong? What's wrong with me? Why, God, are you picking on me? Let me, let me try to put this in perspective for us. And I, I say the word us because when I'm saying this, I'm not preaching it to you. I'm preaching it to myself as well. When we look at the big picture and we remember that Jesus Christ himself, who was God's only son, who was 100% obedient to God, who never did anything wrong, was in complete fellowship with God, when we understand that his life was filled with what? Suffering. He suffered his entire life. What makes you and I think that we get a pass on suffering? Jesus suffered his entire life. So we've all faced and we'll face again the trials of our life. We'll face suffering in our life. And the first thing the Bible teaches us is when we face those difficult days, don't be surprised. It doesn't say enjoy it. But know that suffering is inevitable. It's not simply because you have done something wrong. Now, sometimes there are punishments for our sin, but that's not what we're talking about here. The second thing that we can learn from trials and furnaces in our life is that suffering can refine your faith. Notice I said it, that suffering can refine your faith. Not that it does, but it can. What's the difference? The difference is your perspective. The difference is how you respond to that trial, to that tragedy that's going on in your life. Again, back to the book of 1 Peter. Peter was written to a group of Christians and these were people who were going through ex ex uh, extreme amounts of persecution, not because they were doing anything bad, not because they were living uh, against God's word, but they were going through persecution because they were living in accordance to God's word, because they were trying to obey God's word. And look what Peter tells these men and women who are living according to God's word. He says this, and says, in this you rejoice, what? Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says that your faith, another word for faith is your character, that it's like gold going through fire. What does fire do to gold? It refines it. It strengthens it. 
It makes it more beautiful. It makes it more pure when it goes through that fire. Friends, listen to me. If we respond to suffering by turning to God as opposed to running away from him, then God can and he will use those difficult days to refine us, to strengthen us, and to make us even more devoted to him. But it depends on how we are going to run to God or away from God during those times of suffering. Friends, we can never know everything about the trial that we're facing. We can look at every angle. We can try to diagnose it. We can look under it, around it. We can never know everything about that trial or that season of suffering. But here's what we can know as believers in Jesus Christ. We can know our Heavenly Father. We can trust his hand. We can know that in everything, that in our Heavenly Father's hand, that even our suffering can make us more like him. I don't have to tell you this. You know this. You've experienced this before. Sometimes it's through suffering that we become more compassionate. Sometimes it's through our trials or through our difficult days that we become more genuine, that we become more sympathetic, that we become more generous, that we can identify with other people who are suffering maybe the same thing that we suffered or something similar, but God had to to, to speak to us and comfort us in our own time of difficulty so that then we in turn could go and comfort other people. In fact, I believe that there is no way to really know who you are Till you've been tested. There's no way to truly empathize or sympathize with other people unless you suffered yourself. One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, one, probably my favorite chapter in the Bible, is 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I use it time and time again when I'm talking to people who are going through difficult days. And listen to what, what Paul says here. He says, For as we share abundantly, not every now and then, but as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, why? It is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Now let me be honest with you here. Many people here, maybe this describes you again. Remember, we've taken our masks off. We're going to be honest today. There have been times in our life or there have been times in someone that you know that they have experienced suffering and and it didn't refine them. It didn't draw them closer to God, but in fact, it drove a wedge between them and God and they went the opposite direction. So the question then is, what's the difference between if a trial, if a suffering, if, if, if a difficult season draws us closer to God or if it drives a wedge between us and God? I think you can find the answer in Isaiah chapter 43. In Isaiah 43, this is what the prophet says. Fear not, for I, meaning God speaking through the prophet, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Here's the word again. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God. The answer for how we don't let a a trial, a season of suffering, destroy us or drive that wedge between us and God is that we trust that Jesus Christ walks in that furnace with us, which is our third and final point. That we know that Jesus promises 
to walk through that season of suffering side by side, right alongside you. Remember, King Nebuchadnezzar looked in that fire, and he didn't just see three men. He saw a fourth man, and that fourth man, he said, looked like the son of the gods. Who was that? That was Jesus himself. That was the pre-incarnate version of Jesus who was walking in that furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, I want you to think about this. God could, if he wanted to, he could have saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before they were even thrown into that fire, couldn't he? He could have had some dramatic rescue where he just snatched them up and and they, they were released or some other men came. He could have chosen any way that he could have to release, to to rescue Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, but he didn't choose that way. He allowed them to go in the fire before he rescued them. Why? What's the purpose in that? I think, first of all, it was to show Nebuchadnezzar, hey, this God is able to save He's also showing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that he's going to walk with. But I think it's to show us even today that God walks with us in our furnaces. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. You walk with me even when I'm in that valley. Even when I'm in the furnace, you are walking hand in hand right beside me. Here's what I want you to grasp. If you don't hear anything else, I'm almost done. Please understand this. And that is that you and I will feel Jesus Christ walking with us in your furnace, in your trial, in your season of suffering, to the degree that you know and that you recognize that Jesus himself was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you. You will feel his presence the more that you not only understand cognitively, but you understand with your heart that Jesus, that he was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you. What's the ultimate furnace? The ultimate furnace of life was God's wrath. God's wrath that was against all sin, which you and I have, and that Jesus Christ himself, he took the punishment. He took the debt that you and I owed. He paid our debt. Let let, let me repeat the gospel to us one more time in case you haven't heard it. The gospel is that you and I, we cannot, listen to me, we can't love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We try with all of our heart. We try every single day. We do our best. We can't love him with all our heart, mind, soul. We, we fail every single day. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He took that debt that we owed. He came on the cross. He experienced God's wrath so that you and I would not have to be eternally separated from God. That is what you and I need to keep at the forefront of our minds. When we're going through those trials and we think, well, I've lived a good enough life. Why is this happening to me? God, is this your punishment against me? No, it's not your punishment. He's already taken your punishment. Instead, when we remember that Jesus received the ultimate furnace, the ultimate punishment, we know that God's not punishing you because of your sin. He already took your punishment for you. So here's the last two things I want you to remember. If we'll remember first that God will use the furnace in your life to make you stronger. It's a matter of you're going to turn to him or away from him. Not only that, but secondly, Jesus suffered not so that we will suffer as well, but instead that when we suffer, we will become more like Jesus. For truly, Nebuchadnezzar had it right all along at the end when he said, For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Would you pray with me?
Dearly Father, I know that in this room there are so many needs. There are so many requests that have been lifted to you collectively throughout the years. Those that are suffering physically, those that have prayed for healing, those that have prayed for rebellious children, those that have prayed for children that could never have children, those that have prayed for a spouse, whatever it might be, we know that there are so many needs that have been lifted up to you. And Lord, we confidently come before you today and we say, God, we know that you are able to save. We believe that you will save, but we also say, even if you don't, even if you don't respond the way that we believe that you will, that we know that you can, we're going to trust you. And Lord, that's easy to say with our lips. It's hard to live with our lives. I pray that we would worship you for who you are, not for what we get. Lord, would you, during these next few moments, would you minister to every hurting heart in this room? Some that I know that have prayed for an answer for years and years, and yet they feel so distant from you. Lord, we know that you're sovereign. We know that you're in control. And we know that you walk through that furnace with us. I pray for every hurting heart in this room that they would feel your presence in a real and a mighty way, that they would know that you are walking with them. Lord, if there's someone here in this room today that has never trusted you as Savior, that they have felt that they could earn your love or deserve your love, I pray that today they would cast all that aside and they would come before you and admit their sinfulness, their great need for forgiveness. And they would find a Savior who is ready, willing, and desiring to save. Would you work on our hearts? Would you help us to love you more and more each and every day because of who you are? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.